Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Air Warrior podcast. I'm your host, Caelan Chapman, and this week we continue our coverage of Afghanistan and other key events. We speak with a former US Air Force A-10, F-117A and Thunderbirds Air Demonstration Squadron pilot about his truly exciting career and his experience in flying the Harrier GR-7 on exchange with the RAF. All of that is coming up a little later in the show, but first, here is your news. The news this week. NATO and coalition forces continue to scramble their strategic airlift assets to Kabul International Airport to help evacuate civilian nationals, collaborators and military personnel from Afghanistan following the Taliban's return to power. The tempo of the evacuation effort remains high, despite doubts that the operation would be wound down early following two terror attacks which occurred outside the airport on August 26th. It claimed the lives of at least 72 Afghans, of which roughly 28 were Taliban members, along with 13 US service personnel, most of whom were Marines. So-called Islamic State affiliate ISIS-K subsequently claimed responsibility for the attacks. As the August 31st deadline quickly approaches, a number of nations, including the UK, look set to start winding down their operations in Afghanistan. While tens of thousands of people have already been flown out of the country so far, the final days will likely focus on the withdrawal of NATO and coalition troops and equipment from Kabul, with a reliance on the Taliban to maintain order until the last flight departs. In other news, it has been a big week for the F-15 family, which started on August 21st when a pair of US Air Force F-15E Strike Eagles and the 48 fighter wing RAF Lake and Heath in Suffolk were scrambled to shoot down a drone that was rapidly approaching US Special Forces personnel in eastern Syria. The F-15Es are currently deployed to the region as part of the 332nd Air Expeditionary Wing. One of the two Strike Eagles successfully shot down the drone, which Pentagon sources later confirmed to be of Iranian origin. Since 2017, Iranian drones operated by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its proxies in Syria have posed a threat to coalition forces involved in the anti-Daesh mission known as Operation Inherent Resolve. According to local sources, the surveillance drone was a Mahadja 6, one of six that are used by the Hasht al-Shabi for intelligence gathering and air interdiction operations. While the US remained tight-lipped on the details of the incursion, it is believed that the drone was hit by an AIM-9M Sidewinder short-range air-to-air missile. F-15s assigned to the 48 fighter wing are known to employ that munition, along with the longer-range AIM-120C AMRAM and the AIM-9X captive air training missile for training purposes. And finally, on August 25th, Boeing formally rolled out the first F-15QA Abbeville for the Qatar Amiri Air Force at the company's facility in St. Louis, Missouri. The first batch of F-15QAs is scheduled to be ferried to Qatar before the end of this year, following the completion of pre-delivery pilot training, which has been underway for some time. This official rollout comes more than a year after the initial F-15QA completed its maiden flight from St. Louis on April 13, 2020. The number of aircraft ordered by Qatar has always been quoted by Boeing as being 36. However, various US Department of Defense documents repeatedly refer to 48 examples being on order. When the US Defense Security Corporation Agency initially announced the acquisition details on November 17, 2016, the total planned acquisition was for 72 aircraft. And that was the news. It's now time to turn our attention to Assistant Military Editor Joseph Campion as he speaks with former US Air Force pilot Dean Wilbur Wright, who discusses his impressive career of flying the A-10 Thunderbolt II and F-117A Nighthawk operationally, as well as for the service's world-renowned Thunderbirds Air Demonstration Squadron 
and his time with the Harrier GR7 during an exchange tour with the Royal Air Force. Our guest today, Dean Wilbur Wright, has had an action-packed career serving in the United States Air Force as a fighter pilot. His career saw him gain 151 combat hours and 4,000 total fighter pilot hours. He flew the A-10 Warthog during Operation Desert Storm and the F-117 Stealth Fighter during the Second Gulf War and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Wilbur has had several unique assignments consisting of instructing Taiwanese pilots in the AT-38B, flying as an exchange pilot with Britain's Royal Air Force in the T-1 Hawk and GR-7 Harrier, and most notably in the F-16 as the number 5 Thunderbird solo pilot. Today we will focus on his career as a combat pilot on multiple platforms, specifically the F-117. We will then move on to his time serving as an exchange pilot with the RAF flying Harrier GR-7s. Super exciting, Wilbur. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Good to be here. No problem. So, Wilbur, could you tell us how your career in the USAF started? Well, I can actually take you all the way back to when I was seven. <laughs> oh. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Some friends of our family took me to an air show in Austin, Texas, at an Air Force base that's now gone away. But it, back then, it was called Bergstrom Air Force Base. And it was a fighter base, if I remember right. But anyway, so it was an air show, and the Thunderbirds were displaying uh, at this particular air show. And this was 1972. I was seven. And when I saw that show, it just became the thing that I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a fighter pilot. I didn't want to be in the Air Force. I didn't want, I knew that I wanted to be a Thunderbird. And it just so happened that that's what they did, right? You know, it's, but that's what I wanted to be first. And then as I got older, I, you know, and you mature and you learn more about what they are and who they are and what they do, then, you know, then that kind of provided a bit more focus on my dream. But that's where it all started. Oh, wow. And then did you go to the academy and fly? What aircraft did you fly before you got assigned to your main frontline aircraft? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change your question a little bit. But what aircraft did I fly before I joined the Air Force? And that was absolutely none. <laughs> there's a lot of guys out there, and, and you know, and you've met a lot of them, but, you know, they're so passionate about flying that, you know, they, they pick up odd jobs to pay for instructional lessons to learn to fly and they go and they spend all their time at their local airport. I was not that guy ever. And so I knew I wanted to fly and I knew I eventually, and I wanted to go into the air force and, and I knew that I wanted to go to the academy, but I had no inspiration whatsoever to go down to my local flying airport and field and take any flying lessons. I had no interest whatsoever in, in doing that. So, so the first flying I ever did was once I got to the academy and then, you know, the reason I went to the academy was pretty simple in my mind as well, because if you've been to a show where you have the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels or the Red Arrows or any of those other primary military display teams, they always give you a brochure, right? And the brochure tells you about the team and it will also tell you about each of the, usually just the pilots. It'll give you a short biography of each of those pilots. Well, I kept my brochure from the 1972 Thunderbird team, and I would look at that over and over again. And, and if I remember right, there were only five pilots at the time, only five, five airplanes in the display. And uh, four of the five went to the Air Force Academy. So in my mind, it was black and white. That's where I needed to go. And so that is the one and only main reason that I went to the Academy, or at least applied and was accepted. But then to go back to your question, before I got to my frontline fighter, you have to go through a screening process at the academy and they basically put you in a little Cessna and just to make sure that your hands 
in your brain are connected in your eyes and everything kind of works in coordination. And as long as you can pass that very simple screening process, they send you on to pilot training. So I got about 10 hours in that Cessna, enough to go through a, a couple of solo rides and then straight to pilot training. So when I went to pilot training, we flew the T-37 and the T-38 jet trainers. And so from that point forward, all I ever flew was jets. So for many, many, many years, I had only ever flown jets. I, the only propeller time I had was at 10 hours of assessment back at the academy. So it's a fairly unique way to learn to fly uh, the military style, you know, compared to a lot of civilian guys uh, where they build time and all sorts from single engine to multi-engine and all, you know, right before they ever get into the jets. But not so, it's not that way with the military. So to be specific on your question, so I flew the Cessna, the T-37, which was also a Cessna, and it was a slow jet, and then went to the supersonic Northrop T-38 Talon, and then from there, straight to A-10s. Yeah, A-10s were your first assigned aircraft, correct? And you yeah. uh, flew in Operation Desert Storm, I believe? That's right, yeah. I was based out of England, and we deployed to Insulate Turkey during the Desert Storm time frame. Which base in England were you deployed to? I was specifically at RAF Woodbridge, but... My fighter wing, actually, we occupied both bases because they were so close together. Which fighter wing was that? 81st Tactical Fighter Wing. Okay. Which squadron were you a part of? Oh, I was in the 78th Fighters t- Tactical Fighter Squadron. In fact, the same one as Sticky. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He was there just a few years before me. Ah, very interesting. And yeah, you served on the A-10, but one of the main reasons we have you here on the Air Warrior podcast today is because of your time with the F-117 Stealth Fighter. Oh, right. Can you explain what it's like to be uh, assigned to that aircraft and what it's like to train and fly that aircraft? Well, first of all, I didn't fly it during the black period. So it was it was out of the black by the time I got onto it. And I first went to the F-117 in 1997, I believe it was. And they were based out of Holloman Air Force Base. It was still a kind of an application process to get into the F-117 program. But once I was accepted, I went to training there, and it was unique in that the training squadron was there as well as the operational fighter squadrons were all located at Holloman at the time. So once I finished training, I just walked across the street to my fighter squadron, which was the ninth, the ninth fighter squadron. And there were only two fighter squadrons, the eighth and the ninth. The seventh fighter squadron was the training squadron. And then I spent about two years with that squadron in training. And as we had talked about before, when Kosovo kicked off, the F-117s were called up and were mobilized to, to go out there for combat. But that was the exact same time that I was accepted to the Thunderbirds, and so I left. And so it was very bittersweet for me to have trained on the F-117, but then missed out on combat operations. And so all my peers, my squadron, you know, my squadron mates were all leaving to go to combat, and I was off to join the Red, White, and Blue. So, you know, I, no regrets at all that I really would have liked to have participated in that operation. Yeah. Are there any uh, training missions you could share with us in the F-117? Not speaking about the inside and outs of the aircraft, but any certain memories you have flying a training mission in the... Yeah, it was a really unique airplane. I really enjoyed flying it. Um, I often kind of say it was kind of an old man's airplane because being a fighter pilot is a bit of a young man's game. But the F-117 wasn't a traditional fighter. And I think it's obvious to everybody. There was, yes, there was only one pilot in it. And... 99% of us were fighter pilots. There were a few guys that were, had flown heavies previously, but we dropped bombs. We were a bomber and uh, we didn't have a gun. We didn't carry missiles. We carried laser guided and GPS guided bombs. 
and it was extremely good at what it did. It was uh, one of those airplanes similar to the A-10 that was built for one purpose, and that one purpose it executed perfectly. As far as being a fighter, we didn't normally train with formations. We were single ship missions. We were coordinated with other F-117s as a package, but we didn't do traditional fighter-type formations. It was a lot of nighttime work, as you can imagine. We did do training during the day as well to just to capitalize on the time available. But when it would come down to combat operations, everything was going to be done at night. When I flew it, we had not made the full transition to GPS weapons. It was laser. We were pretty much dedicated to laser-guided weapons alone, which forced us to always fly. If you're a bomber pilot, you end up exposing yourself as a bomber pilot because in order to bomb something accurately, you basically have to fly over your target, right? And when you're over your target, <laughs> then the enemy can see you as well. And that was the same way in the F-117. So we would self-guide our lasers with our bombs with lasers that were on board the aircraft. And that forced us into flying over the target. When we did transition later on into GPS-guided weapons, that's the advantage there is it allowed us to drop a weapon and then not actually fly over the target. We could then, once we dropped it, we could peel off and depart the target area and not you know expose ourselves so much to enemy fire. My last mission in the Air Force was in the F-117. And so to culminate my career, I planned a mission that took me back up to the academy. And I did a simulating bomb run on my actual cadet dorm room, you know, where I pinpointed my dorm room and put a 2,000 pound weapon down my, <laughs> right in my bedroom. <laughs> and I just, I don't know, I thought it was a fitting end to a 20 year career. Absolutely. Yeah. And I did. I was in a formation with some other guys and we were all single ship, but in a kind of a package and we all came back together and we went to the range and dropped more weapons. But uh, that was a fun sortie. What else can I say? The, the timing on the F-117 was extremely important. It wasn't such a, it was not just putting the weapon on target. It was also putting the weapon on target on time. And so we would have very specific time on target parameters. Yeah. And if you were going to be a top gun of the squadron, you had to be within a second of that time across the board. And usually I can easily say that the top 10 or even the top 20 pilots were all within a second. And it was really just a matter of being able to manage the autopilot. The autopilot in the F-117 was crazy good. It was not just three-axis autopilot. It was also the auto throttles. And so when you combine the auto throttles with the autopilot, then it would put the weapons right on time. And it would account for the time of fall of the weapon as well. So when you would start making the bombing run, the aircraft would speed up to its maximum. And then it would drop a weapon. The guidance of the weapon was not auto. There was no autopilot for the guidance. I had to actually do that. And so that was the unique part about that airplane was that the autopilot's flying the airplane. And once you start the target run, I basically, I am no longer the pilot. I'm kind of the bombardier. And so I was totally focused, right? I mean, I, but that's really what it was. I, I was the bombardier. I'm focused on the main screen, which sits front and center in the cockpit, and that's the weapons display. And so all I'm focusing on is finding my target. And then once I find my target, then lasing the target with the laser and then making sure that the bomb comes out, comes off at the time that it should. So I'm monitoring those other systems to make sure they're working correctly but I'm actively working with the lasing on the target. And I have to continue that focus all the way through bomb impact. And then once bomb impact takes place, then I can kind of come out of the weapons display, 
cross check the other parameters, make sure that everything else is okay. You know, that I'm going the right place, the right direction, the right altitude, the right speed, all those things. You know, the aircraft is cleaned up. And then I kind of turn back into the pilot again. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because I want, it was just going across my mind and I wonder if it ever came across the geniuses at the Skunk Works, but I wonder if the F-117 could have been a two-man aircraft if the, well, would it have been if the autopilot wasn't so advanced due to you saying that you were basically a bombardier? It would have. Really? That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see a way around it. The bombing run was, I had to be so focused. There was no way that I could do both. Uh, not accurately. I guess, yes, conceivably I could, but I don't think I could drop a weapon as accurately as I was dropping them with the autopilot fully coupled up and flying the airplane like it did. Yeah. So it was the autopilot that made it so so advanced, really. And of course, the guys dropping the bombs. So it's all a big teamwork uh, mission with yeah. machine and with my machine. Yeah, you name it. Yeah, the engineers who designed it that made it as stealthy as it is, the autopilot being as crazy good as it was to put me right where I needed to be. And then just the technology of the infrared cameras and the magnification that I needed in order to see my target area clearly and then to laze it. Yeah, it was just a one-stop shop. It was a really great package for delivering those sorts of weapons. And, you know, our targets were not buildings per se. We would go for very pinpointed type of targets. If you were trying to take out communications on floor number seven of a high rise, that's what you would target. You would target that floor. You wouldn't target the whole building. We had weapons that could actually find that floor. You know, we would not target just the building in general. We would target an elevator shaft or an air duct or that sort of thing. Something that was was pretty easy for us to hit something that was as small as 10 foot square, 10 by 10. Wow. And did that become even more simple? Well, not simple, but even more precise when GPS came in? Even more precise. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure it did. Wow. So you could hit a certain vent on an air vent. (laughs) (laughs) One of the more, this is a a great example of how accurate the airplane was. It was a tactic that was developed during, I might be guessing here a little bit. I think it was developed during the Gulf War. But if you remember, Saddam Hussein had buried a lot of his high-value assets underground, and we didn't have anything that could penetrate that deeply. And so we had guys that were in there, they were, they were trying to figure out ways to bust those bunkers, and they eventually did. But the F-117 came up with their own in-house tactic, and we called it consecutive miracles. And so stay with me here. So one, it would involve two airplanes. The first F-117 would drop a weapon on the target where we believed the bunker was located. And when that 2,000 pound weapon hits, it obviously develops, it makes a crater, right? It penetrates to a certain depth and then the earth explodes above it and you're left with a crater at the bottom, right? With the weapon at the bottom. But then split second later, that same earth that exploded out is now coming back down on top of that crater that it just made. So what they thought is that they, with the second F-117, it would drop a weapon almost simultaneously, but within a second later of the first one. So as the first weapon hit and cratered, the second one would hit the vacant cavity at the bottom of the first crater and then double the penetration of the first weapon. And that's what allowed us to get that double penetration. But as you can imagine, we had to hit that first crater before the earth came back and filled in on top of it. So, yeah, quick succession. (laughs) Amazing timing. 
Indeed. Well, interesting. And I think I might have read about that myself in a Stealth Fighter book about that sort of tactic. Yeah, it's very interesting and very, uh, well, whoever thought of it was a bit of a genius. (laughs) (laughs) So the other thing we've got you here today for is your time serving over here in good old England. Yeah. And I actually didn't know you served your time as an A-10 pilot in England, but we know, well, I did know that you served as a Harrier exchange pilot during your time in the United States Air Force. So right. where were you uh, Where were you based on our Harriers? Well, my training and my operational squadron were at RAF Wittering, which was in the Midlands near Peterborough, and Stanford was our local town. The OCU was there, and then number one fighter squadron was there. So I went through the OCU and then just transitioned right there at Wittering and stayed at number one fighter squadron. And did you deploy during your time? I was there 93 through 95, and there were no combat operations while I was there. And so, no, I didn't deploy. I Again, I missed out on a deployment at the tail end of my time there because the RAF was just starting to play with the idea of combining their land-based GR-7s with their Sea Harriers and combining them on the ships. And so I missed out on that. Again, my timing didn't work out so well. That would have been really interesting, really fun to have played around with the joint operations of the land and sea-based carriers. But um, anyway, but so to answer your question, no. I, the only deployments I ever did with my squadron were all there in England or in you know Germany or something like that. What kind of training operations did you get up to in the Harrier? What, did you fly the, the good old low-level areas of England and Wales oh, yeah. and Scotland? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I felt really fortunate that I had a lot of time in A-10s up and down England and Scotland and Wales during 89 to 92. So I kind of knew, already knew England like the back of my hand and the low level structure and where to go and how to fly. And and so that really helped me during my Harrier time. I knew how to deal with the weather because the weather can be really unpredictable and hard to deal with. So, uh, you know, I had that to my advantage as well. But yeah, I tell you, there's just the low level flying in England is really hard to beat anywhere else in the world. And um, one of my favorite stories is, and it, you know, I'll make a comparison and a contrast with my time with A10s in England. So when I was flying A10s out of East Anglia, we had a big map in our navigation room, and a map of the entire you know, country, right? And whenever we would get a noise complaint, well, the navigation officer would take that noise complaint and he would go into the big map and he would circle that area. And that was that area we would have to avoid, you know, sometimes permanently we'd have to avoid it. And eventually you get a lot of those little red circles all over the map. And so you're when you're planning your low level routes, you have to avoid all those and then it becomes pretty restrictive. Conversely, when I went to the RAF, they had the similar setup. We had a navigation room, we had a big map. We had a navigation officer. When we get the noise complaint, navigation officer would go in there and he would circle that. But instead of being a point that we would have to avoid, it actually became the turn point of every single low level that we flew from that hill. That guy would call back and and, and call Uncle Mercy. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> and so it was just two different two different perspectives, and uh, so I kind of I enjoyed that. Uh, so we had a lot more freedom in the RAF than we did on flying A10s. Oh, really? That's uh, quite unexpected. Yeah. What was it like to fly a VTOL aircraft? Being, I know you flew the A-10 and the jet. Yeah, the, the A-10 was extremely easy to fly, as it should be. And as I often tell guys, you know, flying fighters is 99% mental and just 1% physical, right? 
I'm exaggerating, but my point is that flying the airplanes is really not that hard. It's employing the airplanes and doing something with it, using it as a tool. That's the hard part. And it was the same way with the with the Harrier, except that the Harrier was very challenging to fly. It did require more than that 1% to fly the airplane. And it wasn't a naturally forgiving airplane. Most jets are. Most aircraft are naturally forgiving. If you stall the airplane, it's going to recover on its own. If you depart control flight, it's going to recover on its own. They just, they glide easily, those sorts of things. But the Harrier was the exact opposite. There was just a lot of things that, not a lot, there were a few things that you could do in that airplane that were unrecoverable. That You know, you you make that mistake and you're going to pay for it. And I, I can tell you a story. Uh, the way I learned that lesson was we were doing, man, I'm having to reach back in his memory as well to remember some of this stuff. But we were, if you, if you know anything about the Harrier, the Harrier actually carried, I believe, 50 gallons of water. And they used that water to cool down the engine. And when you cool down the engine, you can then produce more thrust, right? So we were doing formation takeoffs out of RAF Wittering, and we were committed to using that water for the takeoff because we were taking off on the little piece of concrete that connected the parallel taxiway to the runway. So we weren't using the runway to take off. We weren't using the parallel taxiway. We were just using that little strip of concrete that connected the two. So it's just a few hundred feet long. That's it. So that's one of the reasons we need the water, the extra thrust. And plus, there were also trees on the other side of the runway that we had to clear. So another reason we needed the extra thrust. I had just finished my training at the OCU and had just transitioned into the fighter squadron. And I'm not making excuses here, but during training, we never had to do a water-committed takeoff. And so it was not part of my cross-check. In fact, I think, Joe, I can still remember my pre-flight takeoff check. It was um, fuel flaps, MAS, so stop trim. So I checked my fuel, checked the flaps. The MAS, I can't remember what the MAS stood for. Fuel flaps, MAS, stow, stop trim. Anyway, my point is water was not in that check. And so sure enough, I get out there, get ready for takeoff, and I'm you're doing other things simultaneously. And when it came time for takeoff, I did not turn my water on. I did my takeoff. I got the airplane airborne, but I noticed I wasn't climbing out as steeply as I should be. And I got really close to the trees on the other side of the runway. And that's when I got my water on and then missed the trees, went on. We finished our mission. And then when I got back down, my commander said, you know, he, he realized he knew what had happened. And then he basically just said, welcome to the Harrier Force. You know, everybody, all of us have had some sort of experience like that. And you only get one. And that one was yours. Don't do it again. <laughs> oh. yeah. so there, were, there were little nuances about the airplane that were fundamentally higher risk than other airplanes. But at the end of the day, it was an extremely satisfying airplane to have conquered, if you will, to finally be able to fly it in a way that you can make it do what you wanted it to do. It very, very satisfying because it was a challenge to fly. Did you ever take the Harrier to the ranges to Dunnanook? Oh, yeah. 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 Dunnanook and Cowden and Waynefleet and Hull Beach and Garvey Island up to the north and Primary Sands. And yeah. Yeah. We, we took them to the range all the time. Well, that was our primary job was, was close air support. So dropping bombs and shooting the gun. That was just like the A-10. We just did it faster. That was our primary mission was close air support. And before the GR-7s, did you learn at Valley on the Hot T-1 or did you I did. just come straight from... Oh, right. Okay. Oh, no, no. We definitely went through uh, Hawks first. And I'm really glad we did. I thought it was a really valuable course. So I actually went to... Oh, I can't... Oh, Shivener. Shivener. Oh. RAF Shivener. 
So that's where okay. I went first. I my time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's where I went first. And the whole point of that program was basically to take us exchange guys because we had me, a couple of Navy guys, an Australian guy, two German guys. Anyway, it was to give us a chance to learn RAF tactics, RAF radio calls, RAF procedures, formation procedures, the weather, all that stuff, and kind of get that fundamental knowledge first and then take that then to our respective OCUs. What I was really impressed with, not only was I impressed with the Hawk, it was a beautiful airplane to fly, but the RAF flies incredibly, they have a different mindset than the U.S. Air Force does. And looking back, I would really make the distinction is that the reason that the two have such different mindsets is because of the difference in size. The RAF is relatively small compared to the size of the Air Force. And it'd be, it'd be you know, if you're married and you have a dozen children, you're going to make rules to accommodate your least disciplined child, right? But if you only have two or one, you can actually be a lot more loose, a little more, you know, you can give them a lot more autonomy and independence based upon their their own self-discipline. And I think that was the difference between the two, you know, the U.S. Air Force being so large and having to accommodate so many pilots with such a broad range of skill sets and talents that we had rules that are much more constricting than what you had in the RAF. I remember I had not been at Shiviter Long, and I'd only had a couple of flights under my belt and was cleared solo. In fact, my very first solo flight, they actually cleared me to go to the range and drop weapons by myself, which blew me away that they would allow that because that would never be allowed in the USAF, at least not on the first one. They would, you know, it'd just be a while. And we never went to the range solo. We always are not solo, single ship. We never went to the range single ship. You always had at least a two ship to provide mutual support. But on my first solo, I went to Pembroke Sands by myself and dropped weapons and whatever. So anyway, I thought that that, that difference in mentality between the two services was, was very unique. Yeah, indeed. Uh, quite surprising, but very good analogy of it being larger and the RAF being smaller and the rules having to be engaged a lot more strict to, to keep right. like a more you know, wider variety of, of people. Right. One of the things I had to deal with on my exchange was just the banter that would take place and, and being the lone American times, you know, I was, it was one versus many you know, and banter. And so I had a few tools that I would resort to sometimes with the banter. One of them was the size of the RAF. And I would make the analogy, I'd say, you know, in our services, we have an Air Force, that's our largest Air Force, but we also have the Navy. But the Navy, did you know, the Navy has their own Air Force, right? And they have their own army. And their army's called the Marines. And you know that their army has their own little Air Force, the Marine Corps Aviation. And that little tiny little Air Force is bigger. It's like twice as big as the RAF. <laughs> so it should give you a comparison in size. Yeah. No, and I'm pretty sure that comparison still stands as well. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, actually, and it's probably, I don't know if it will be news to you or if you keep up to date, but it's very clear that our Harriers are gone and we don't have a Harrier force anymore. Right. But we also will be losing our, because I'm taking a good guess that you trained on the Hawk T1. Yes. Yeah, that's going out of service next year with the oh. RAF. Yeah. Wow. I just, what are the Reds going to fly? Still the Hawk T1. And we okay. do have the Hawk T2, which is an updated version. So that's okay. more advanced. So 
we currently have 100 squadron aggressors using the T1 in the RAF, uh, RAF Lehman, but they're sadly disbanding yeah, yeah, next, next year. Yeah. So the Hawk T1 has seen better days. <laughs> right. Well, I was very yeah. fortunate and very happy to have flown it. It was a beautiful little airplane. Yep. It is indeed. I'm sure a lot of people will miss it like yourself. When I finished at Shiviter, and before I went to OCU on Harriers, there was enough time that they actually let me go do it again. So I went up to RAF Valley and did the whole course again. Not because I had to, but I had the time available and the, and, there was, and I needed the currency. So it was fun. I got to go up there and fly as well. And so it gave me more time flying around Wales. You hit the Mac Loop quite a lot. Did you call it that back then, the Mac Loop? Well, the Mac Loop that I'm familiar with is actually doing an entire lap around England. Oh, really? Yeah, and the Mach Loop I was familiar with, the F-111s and the Tornadoes would do it. And they would just, F-111s could just go into Afterburner and just do an entire loop around the England. They call it the Mac Loop. I don't know what, what, what's the Mac Loop that you're referring to. So did you have LFA areas numbered back then? So yes. we have, yeah, so LFA 7. Yeah, that in was Wales, Wales. Yeah, it? North Wales. Yeah, yeah, that is now called the Mac Loop commonly. But that's really oh. interesting because I don't think a lot of people know. Well, that came from or originated from the Lake and Heath guys and the tornadoes going right. supersonic right. around the UK. That makes more sense. Mac. <laughs> no one goes through the Mac loop now, supersonic. So, yeah, we right. have our main places like LFA 7, Barla, and Maclean F, Dolgaliu. Yeah. If, if they ring any bells. And then you've got LFA 17 up at Windermere and Thelmere. Uh -huh. That was my favorite LFA. Just beautiful terrain. Yeah. Yeah, but that's really interesting. That's a bit of a conversation for some people that I need to have about the Mac Loop being <laughs> apparently around the whole UK, not just a small part of Wales. That's my understanding, Joe. You know, I may have misunderstood the conversation. Of course, I never flew F-111s or Tornadoes, but um, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. LFA-7 wasn't big enough for a F-111. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? They needed a lot of room, yeah. And they had so much gas and their speed was so great. Yeah, if you just were constricted into LFA-7 alone, they'd just be in a tight turn the entire time. Yeah, well, Tornadoes went through LFA-7 very frequently. That's where their main yeah. training was done. But I didn't know about F-1. To be honest, no, I've never seen any pictures of F-111s going through. So, yeah, it could be correct. In LFA-7 and then the Scottish LFAs, I don't remember the numbers up there, but they were the only ones that allowed us down to 100 feet. All the other LFAs were at 250. 250, yeah. I think it's still 250. I think it's the rule is 250 at 250. 250 knots at 250 feet. And I oh, actually really? think the United States... I might be wrong there, and if it's wrong, I apologize. But also, I think the F-15s at Lakenheath currently are 500, but oh, that might yeah, be also... Be. We weren't restricted on speed. We were allowed to exceed 250 at 250 feet. In fact, the, the speed just wasn't restricted as long as you weren't supersonic. Crazy. Well, that was interesting, and uh, we went off on a little bit of a tangent there, so um, <laughs> that's what it's all about. I... <laughs> yeah, <I'm> just... <laughs> Great. No, it's nice to rejog your memory as well of your time back here and also just your time in the Air Force. I'm sure you've got plenty more you could share, but we won't keep you any longer. Thank you, Will. Right. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah. Thanks again, Joe. Yeah, always happy to talk about that stuff. Yeah, it's fun for me too. For our listeners, if you would like to know more about the topics discussed today, as well as the rest of the news from the Air Domain, please visit the Key Aero and Air International websites. But for now, and until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.